From 12 News, this is Newsmakers. A recent 12 News Roger Williams University poll shows most voters are still unsure who they want to replace retiring Congressman Jim Langevin. Our poll last month found 33% of likely Democratic primary voters picked Seth Magaziner, 5% David Siegel, followed by Joy Fox and Sarah Morgenthau getting 4%, with Cameron Moquin and Omar Ba getting about 1%, but a full half, 50% of the people we polled are undecided. Welcome to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White. Ted Nisi is off again and joining me once again is Steph Machado from Target 12. And joining us is one of those congressional candidates, Joy Fox. She's Democratic candidate for Congress. Good morning. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So look, I've read and listened to several interviews with you and, and noticed that when you're asked why you want to be a member of Congress, mm -hmm. uh, you answer by talking about your connection to Rhode Island and the second congressional district, how you went to Rhode Island College and and the different public service jobs that have connected you to the people. But I gotta tell you, that doesn't really answer the question as to why you want the job. So what is it about being potentially a US rep that you want it? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, and the other uh, bit that I would add to my bio too is I run a small business now. So I run a small strategic communications firm um, and are working while campaigning as well. Um, it is all of those experiences combined that give me a unique perspective that I can hit the ground running on day one. Having covered local government and seen and really covered how that everything is connected, local, state, and federal, having worked at the state government and the federal government, I've been in the room where it happens. I've been around the table um, for some of the larger pieces of legislation in the state at any, at any rate in the last couple of years, starting with retirement security and pension reform, infrastructure, economic development, education, you name it. Uh, I, was, I was in the room where it happened. So I think having that experience plus the deep understanding of the district is critical to hitting the ground on day one. I want to bring up those poll uh, results once again that we had off the top of the show. And I, I won't go through each of the candidates, but the big headline here is 33% for Seth uh, Magaziner, a full 50% um, you know, are undecided in this race. So a lot up for grabs, certainly, right. Joy. But you're coming in at 4% at here. 4% cannot be where you want to be in a poll right now. Right, and um, we've seen some movement too. Uh, one of our opponents announced a poll last week that uh, had him and I closing the gap on, on the front runner in this race, and I think that can only continue. Certainly, we're concentrated on the 50% and getting out and talking to as many people as possible uh, to get the word out. Joe, you haven't held elective office before. This is a crowded race for Congress. Did you think about running for state rep, state senate, uh, before going straight to Congress? No, this is the only thing that I've ever thought about running for, and I had not been thinking about it before Congressman Langevin's announced retirement. But in talking to friends, families, and mentors, and looking again at my experience, my experience not only having grown up in the district, but my work experience and being in those rooms, I do think as a, as a staff person, a former staff person, and someone that runs a small business now, I understand how to get things done and move things quickly. Look, you need to raise a lot of money to run for yeah. Congress. At the end of the last... Uh, in the first quarter of this year, you had $168,000 on hand. Seth Magaziner had $1.3 How has your fundraising gone in the second quarter, and are you going to be able to catch up? I don't think it's a question of catching up. I think it's a matter of having enough to be competitive, and that's our goal here. 
And how did the second quarter fundraising go? Good. I mean, where where it's a constant, you're constantly on the phone. It's just part of the job of running for office. I wish it wasn't that way. I think money in politics is a problem, and we need to to address that problem, and I hope to be able to do that once elected. Will you be able to raise enough money to get up on TV with ads, for example? We're, we're working hard to be as competitive as possible. Let's talk about some policy stuff. Uh, you have repeatedly said you want to fix the gun problem uh, once and for all. I'm curious, I, I'd like to hear you define what the gun problem is before we talk about what the fix might be. Uh, it's a it's a uniquely American problem that is absolutely devastating, and it devastates not only um, the families that are affected by it, but our entire community. I think of the, the gun safety in three ways. One, there is the community aspect of it. You know, we cover when it happens, you know, the moment that it happens. Everyone goes to Buffalo and goes to Texas. There is so much damage that is done to a community post the actual event that we need to do better at addressing. So that's mental health, that's community supports. Uh, it's also before the event happens. These things aren't spontaneous. These are things that either you're hearing or seeing in your community and everyone needs to feel comfortable going to those in leadership, whether it be a school principal or a boss in a workplace to say, hey, something doesn't feel right or I saw something. Second is the policy prescriptions of it. It's the high capacity, it's banning high capacity magazines, it's banning the assault weapons, it's raising the age to buy one of these weapons of war, and it is um, increasing background checks. And <clears throat> lastly, I think too, it is, um, it is about really digging into the fact that we need data to be able to, to move these issues even further along. Uh, it's not unlike when we started having data on car accidents and seatbelt safety. We need to keep collecting data on these things to better promote the policies and help with the community work that needs to happen as well. It is a public health issue that some, we need to address. Some members of your party uh, want to return <clears throat> to a law that bans so-called assault rifles and how those are defined would be in you know, the, in the legislation, but most people think of an AR-15. Do you right. support or oppose an assault weapons ban. I support it. So you represent a district that is increasingly becoming more conservative relative, mm -hmm. of course, to Rhode Island, a lot of rural areas. Mm -hmm. um, and so there will be a lot of people that you're asking to represent that do not agree with you on a lot of the policy issues mm -hmm. that you laid out. You know, I'm wondering if 12 News and Roger Williams did another poll and asked CD2 voters, mm -hmm. you know, if they support the policies and, they, and for all or some of them, they said no, would you abide by their wishes? You know, it's funny that you ask it that way, too. I've had conversations with, with some hunters. I've done various events and house parties, and, and they've come up, and, and we've had conversations. We've looked each other in the eye, and they said, look, I don't, you're, if you are a gun owner that enjoys hunting and is, has safety as top of mind, um, <clears throat> these are things we can agree on. And he said, you know, you should come out to the gun club and talk to everyone. And I look forward to taking him up on that invitation at some day. I think people who follow the rules, it's not about taking away guns, it's about making our community safer. We should all feel safe going to school and work and, and out this weekend, whether we're at Gatsby Days or at PVD Fest. You know, the House passed um, some gun measures earlier this week, but they seem to have virtually no chance of making it through the Senate, mm -hmm. which is closely divided. I know you're not running for Senate, but do you think the filibuster should end, mm -hmm. allowing more bills to pass through that chamber? I think we need to do something to get rid of the gridlock there, because you're right, the House is doing its job and pushing along critical pieces of legislation, and the Senate um, and the Republicans in the Senate needs to stop obstructing um, important community safety measures. 
Oh, I was Sorry. just saying, you know, there's a, there's a, <laughs> pundits think there's going to be a red wave this fall electing mm. Republicans. The House could flip red. How would you legislate from the minority party? if elected. It's still about listening and having conversations. It's still about understanding what the needs of Rhode Islanders are and going down to Washington to advocate for those. And it's working with the rest of the Rhode Island delegation to get those things done. So Congressman David Cicilline has called on expanding the number of justices on the U.S. Supreme Court from 9 to 13. Critics label that court packing. Do you support or oppose it? Yeah, I think I actually talked to Channel 12 about that during the Roe v. Wade um, when the, the, the leak happened. Um, and yes, I do think that we should look at expanding the courts. Um, is it going to happen? Probably not. It's, it's, there's a lot of things, as you were just saying, the gridlock and, and, and Congress. Um, so it will be up to, to Congress Are you worried to, at to all legislate that, 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 that will further, um, you know, propel the perception that the court is politicized. If, if The court is politicized. I mean, it's a problem or, right now. Or has or has the Democratic Party done a terrible job at uh, promoting uh, judges in the U.S. District Court level and the appellate court level and that has no, I think that, and not winning seats in the, in the U.S. Senate? Yeah, I think this administration has pushed along um, many court appointments. Again, it comes to the obstructionists in Congress and the Republican Party. Where do you think you differ from your former boss, Congressman Langevin, who you are now seeking to replace in Congress? Definitely on the choice issue. Um, I have always been pro-choice. I think the government uh, has no business in women's health care. Um, similar question, but I want to know where you differ with Seth Magaziner, because he has the name recognition across Rhode Island. He's obviously a statewide office holder. How, how would you distinguish yourself to voters from him? I grew up in the district. I grew up in Cranston. I live in Warwick now. I absolutely love where I live. This is a matter of service for me and serving my community. I also run a small business and understand the ups and downs. It is the most exhilarating thing to run your own business. It's also terrifying. <laughs> um, and I understand that and what that means. So it's my lived experience that I think sets me apart from the entire field here. Do you have a policy differences with him, do you think? I don't know if we have policy differences. Um, I will say there are two things that are most important to me uh, that Congressman Langevin worked on that I feel very strongly about continuing. One is family caregivers. He passed um, one of the first um, comprehensive pieces of legislation to take care of and Im improve access um, to family caregivers who wanted to keep their loved ones at home. That's a personal issue to me and it's a personal issue I'm, I'm guessing to the three of us around this table. We've all had caregiving um, experiences. And we need to do more for our family caregivers who want to keep their loved ones home. And second, on the completely other end of the spectrum, is cybersecurity. I was on the, the team when we were laughed at. We, this will never be an issue. What are you doing? Don't waste my time. Is cyber spelt with a C or an S? This will never be a thing. And <laughs> here should, we are. We should mention <coughs> uh, that you work for, for the people at home that don't know. You work yeah. for Congressman Langevin yes, for did. a while. And I so did. that's I did. your. I worked for Congressman Langevin, and then from there I went to go work for Gina Raimondo in Treasury. And I ran her transition into the governor's office, which is another experience that I have that is unique. Um, it, it was a tremendous effort to stand up a state government in about six weeks. I wonder if you think Democrats have an image problem when it comes to crime. Republicans have zeroed in on crime and public safety uh, for the midterms, and we are all already seeing this as a problem for some progressives in cities where quality of life problems are front and center. Defund the police, criminal justice reform, decarceration. Is that giving you and your party headwind in any way? I don't think so. I think, I think, again, these are local community issues. And I'll go back to the three things that I talked about with gun safety. It is about 
bringing the community together at the local level, making sure that we are all working together from law enforcement to community organizations to, to emergency room physicians and healthcare providers. Everyone has a role to play here. Then we need the data to tell the story, to support what we're seeing right in front of our faces. It's unacceptable, um, the gun violence in this country. It is, it is devastating and the long-term effects are unfathomable. Um, and then we need to, to take both the community efforts and the data that we have and put together good sound policies that keep us all safe. Joy, we are all feeling the pinch at the gas pump, the grocery store with inflation. Can you tell me something specific you would do to provide relief? There's a couple of things. Obviously, this is this is a devastating issue as well. Um, people are hurting. People are feeling it. I know the three of us probably filled up our tank this week and, and paused a little. I did. Yeah. Sixty dollars. <laughs> yeah. Yes, mine too. Actually, um, there's a couple of things here. There's the short term part of it. I think there are things that worked during the pandemic and you even covered it with the state budget, um, the child tax credit. We need to do that on the federal level as well. We need to make sure we have paid leave. Um, we need price gouging. The House passed a price gouging bill uh, uh, for fuel and it's it's in the Senate awaiting action. These, these are the things that we could do I think short term. I think long term um, we need to this economy will be in transition for a very long time. So what are we doing to prepare Rhode Islanders for that? And that goes back to universal pre-K, to the Pell Grant, to making sure workforce development programs and apprenticeship programs are there for people who, who want to participate in this economy and want to have the opportunity to live, work, and raise their families here. We, we have to go in you know, a few already? seconds. I know, it goes by quick, doesn't <laughs> it? Does. It really does. Uh, but there has, if you were in Congress right now, would you be seeking to suspend the federal gas tax at all to help some folks at the pump? I think it's worth looking at, especially a holiday at least. I mean, it's all about how you're going to pay for these things because, you know, there are trade-offs here. Um, but we definitely need to do, to, to, do things to get this economy moving, to make people feel good about the economy again. I mean, we've had record job creation. We passed the infrastructure bill. The state budget and the state leaders last night, we saw were able to provide relief for working families because of the federal money that we have. It's all connected. And so we need to take a serious look at everything. All right, one last quick question. <laughs> uh, if you are elected into office and if the Democrats do stay in power, would you vote for Nancy Pelosi as House Speaker again? Yes, and whoever the Democrats put up to, yes. Right. Joy Fox, Democratic candidate for Congress, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, thank you. When we come back, what you need to know about the state budget, stay with us. You're watching Newsmakers. Welcome back to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White. To my right is Target 12 investigator Steph Machado, and we are joined by our colleague Eli Sherman for this Reporters Roundtable. And uh, big headline this week, Steph, uh, late night at the State House. You, you were both there very late uh, at the State House last night. House Finance Committee passed a $13.6 billion budget proposal, which is honestly the big hurdle uh, up, up at the State House. Give us a rundown of the highlights of the tax and spend plan. Yeah, so listen, I've covered a lot of state budgets. Usually they're finding ways to raise revenue and cut spending because there's a deficit. It was a totally different story this year. They had plenty of money to spend, so they did do some tax cuts, the most notably getting rid of the car tax one year early, which uh, affects a lot of Rhode Islanders. They also put in a child tax credit and some other um, tax relief. Uh, and then they're spending the money on a whole long list of priorities from education to housing to a number of small little new programs they had a lot of money to work with so they mm -hmm. put in you know for example a, a pilot program to 
see if making Ripta bus fares free would work. Uh, they put in a program to make fruits and vegetables cheaper for people on food stamps. So there's a lot of little programs in there, and we have a rundown on our website of all you can find in that big budget. One, one thing in the uh, car tax, so uh, not... It sounds like it wasn't great news for East Providence, right? Are they on a different fiscal year? Is that the deal? Yeah, so East Providence's fiscal year doesn't start till November, and they've, they're have they a year behind on the six-year car tax phase-out. All the rest of us are on year five. East Providence was on year four. So the way the budget bill is written, East Providence is the only community that still has to send out tax bills this uh, summer. Hmm. I will say the mayor of East Providence, Bob De Silva, told me they are trying to figure out a way to cut the car tax in East Providence this summer, just like everyone else. If that's not yet in the budget, we'll see how that works out. No, our studios are in East Providence, so I thought I'd bring that up. <laughs> yes, we care about that city. And you talked about tax cuts, um, but it, it's, it sounded like the, the Republican, the GOP members of uh, the General Assembly weren't thrilled. Yeah, the, the Republicans sent out a, a news release yesterday just slamming state leaders for not including a cut to the gas tax. They said, you know, this this announcement came on the day when gas reached $5 a gallon, yeah. there should have been a gas tax cut. Um, the way that Speaker Shikarchi defended that decision yesterday was he said, look, the gas tax funds infrastructure projects. It, it is set aside for a lot of expenses. And RIPTA. And yes, and he noted that, you know, gas prices fluctuate so often they're set, you know, gas prices are not set by the government. And so he said people might not actually notice the cut to the gas tax in their pocket as clearly as they will notice the car tax cut. They will not be getting that bill. And that, for some folks, is hundreds or even thousands of dollars. All right. Well, staying on the budget uh, as a whole, Eli, I, I want to play some some sound from House Speaker Joseph Shikarchi about the Governor's Municipal Learning Centers. But before we do that, <laughs> I, unfortunately, I'm going to have you sort of define what the Municipal Learning Centers are for people at home who don't know what it is. Yeah, you could think of them as sort of mayor-run uh, after-school programs or early childhood education programs where uh, students can come after school or before school or if they need some extra learning they can go there and receive different types of educational programs. They're completely separate from uh, the traditional school system so it's it's still within city government but it's outside of the umbrella of education and look like the only one that exists right now is actually in Cumberland. It was created in 2007 by then mayor um, Dan McKee and so he, he has proposed 15 million dollars in this budget to sort of expand it and um, have other municipalities across the state create their own. And he was uh, proposing using some federal relief funds to do that but there was some concern of course from lawmakers that that would then that money would just be passed on to municipalities and it didn't make the budget uh, Speaker Shikarchi spiked it he was asked why here's what he had to say. It's a new program, and we kind of try to, uh, you know, concentrate on existing programs, and it's, uh, you know, it's untested, and I, I think there's some merit in it, to be quite honest with you, but I think it needs to be, and we like to say in this business, a little bit more baked. I think the details need to be out there, and I think there's a lot more information from cities and towns. Um, we didn't, there was not a lot of um, uh, interest from my colleagues in the House. So, uh, you know, it did not make the budget, as I said there, and you heard from Speaker Shikarchi, this was a budget defeat for the governor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's, you know, what's most striking about it also is, as Steph laid out, there is a lot of money in this budget, a lot of extra money that they wouldn't typically have 
during a normal budget year. And uh, to see, you know, something that was a priority of the governor's get killed at $15 million is significant. But we should not ignore the fact that a lot of the went into uh, trying to expand these municipal learning programs was run by the edu education consulting firm ILO Group, right. um, which of course was granted a very controversial contract last year that we covered extensively. And now we know the FBI is investigating how that contract was awarded. So, you know, while they didn't say it there, there may be some feelings among lawmakers of not wanting to fund some project that uh, you know, has sort of this dark cloud hanging over it. Yeah, a hot potato, uh, in not so many words. All right, Steph, big vote in Providence with a not so big turnout. Um, voters approved a pension obligation bond to borrow more than $500 million, 515 to be exact, to go into the terribly funded city pension plan. Boy, that turnout was definitely not a mandate. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I was waiting to see if they would get above 5% turnout, which would still be very low, and they didn't do so. The mayor argued it was a mandate because of it was a 70% of the voters who turned out that voted for it. And he noted this is not exactly an issue that gets voters excited and out to the polls. But look, if you're trying to borrow that much money and you're going to the public and saying, look, the voters approved of this. Well, only a few thousand voters approved of this out of hundreds of thousands. I, and I, I have to wonder, if, you know, at the end of the day, after all that, and, and this was something that the mayor pushed, do you think that... Is there a possibility that they won't even float the bond? Absolutely. Uh, that is the $515 million question. <laughs> well done. Will they be able to get under this 4.9% interest rate, which is what the General Assembly leaders have put in their bill, um, in order to be able to actually borrow the money? Interest rates are rising. I think city leaders are optimistic, but the mayor is really uh, making it clear that it is possible that his administration, which ends in January, might not be the ones to float this bond. And that's where things get a little bit uncertain, right? Because we don't know who the next mayor is going to be. Um, all three of them did say they voted for the bond, but that doesn't mean they're you know, as enthused as Mayor Lorza is. Plus, we're going to have a whole new city council um, with lots of new faces next year, and they also have to vote to approve the bond whenever it's borrowed. It hasn't passed the Senate yet, has it? No, it passed Senate Finance um, on Thursday, okay. and the last step will be the full Senate and then, uh, you know, the governor's signature. All right, Eli, another big story. We're going to move north from uh, Providence to Pawtucket. Uh, news, a lot of news, on Tidewater Landing this week. This is that Pawtucket development that includes a 10,000-seat soccer stadium. The developer and the city of Pawtucket, we should say, is seeking another $30 million, thanks a lot to inflation in supply chain issues. Actually, as we were walking in the studio to tape this program, there was a little bit of news on this. Yeah, um, I just got word from the governor's office that the commerce officials, either the ones that hold the purse strings as to whether or not to award additional state funding for the project, which is what the developer and city officials want, um, they are going to reconvene and consider some type of proposal or some type of idea, it sounds like, on Tuesday of this coming week. Uh, what exactly that looks like is unclear. As you mentioned, the financial gap, according to the developer and city officials, is about $30 million. But the governor's office and commerce uh, board members have been pretty clear that they don't necessarily want to cover that all with state revenue or, or, or be on the hook for all of that $30 million. So I know that even now, as we tape this, there are negotiations going on between the state and developer to try and figure out exactly what that might look like. Right. So Tuesday should be revealing day. It shouldn't be lost at McKee, who 
by the way, chairs the uh, who chairs commerce. Uh, he's a Blackstone Valley guy, right? Uh, yep. And so this might be some. I, and I am a little bit surprised by this development. Um, having reported on it on, I think it was Monday, I felt like it was a it was some cold headwinds from based on what came out of the the meeting on Monday with Commerce, uh, it didn't seem to be a lot of appetite with those board members to spend more state money. Yeah, you know, uh, it shouldn't be lost to anyone that Pawtucket Mayor Donald Grebian was an early endorser of uh, Governor McKee for his race of governor. And so, and you know, by all accounts, they're pals. So, you know, there is sort of this odd friction that is existing right now. But look, I think state leaders look at this development and say, Hey, you proposed this in 2019. You came to us with an ask then. You said you could do it with that amount of money. We gave you that amount of money. Um, and here you are coming back to us just almost within a year of when actually the hard numbers came out saying we need a lot more. And there, there may not be as big an appetite to pony up more money. And this is coming on the back of the commerce putting up a hefty uh, promise towards rehabilitating Superman. the Superman building I, I in downtown Providence. So the timing for this development, which you know they thought maybe they had dealt with already, coming back, maybe working against them in this moment. All right, this is a reporter's roundtable. We have to get to the biggest news uh, of the month by far. It's not even close. A new addition to the 12 News family. There she is, Samantha <laughs> and Irene Nisi was born. On May 26, she was uh, she is was six pounds eight ounces. She's bigger now. Uh, Ted Nisi, uh, who is the father, and Mom Kim Kalunian are doing great. And with a new newsmakers viewer, we now have doubled our ratings, uh, as it turns <laughs> out. So I hear I got, she's watched every episode of Newsmakers since her birth. She better not miss this one since she was in it. <laughs> Congratulations, Ted and Kim. Uh, she is beautiful, and welcome, Samantha. All right, for Stepashado, Eli Sherman, I'm Tim White. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next week on Newsmakers.